So how has the real estate brokerage business changed over the years? Are you still learning as a broker? Oh, yeah. Uh, you, got, you got, look, it's like riding a bicycle. Unless you're pedaling forward, you're going to fall over, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, we're still learning. I'm, I'm still figuring out ways how to get screwed on commissions. But, but uh, it has changed. You know, you can't be a lone wolf in this business. You never you ha- you can't be. And, and I, you know, look, look I've, I started out being a bit of a lone wolf at Coldwell Banker, and, and it quickly doesn't work. You've got a team. People expect it. You've got to have more than brokerage on your team when you're pitching business. You've got to have workplace strategy. You've got to have project management. Maybe you need financing. You know, now people are going in with a full, full team. I mean, the only thing we don't do now is, is property management. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we uh, go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. On today's show, I'm pleased to introduce Vernon Narr. Vernon is the Executive Managing Director of Savills Brokerage Firm here in uh, Washington, D.C., Savills, of course, is an international firm with about 37,000 employees. But Vernon has been in the Washington, D.C. market now for 42 years doing real estate brokerage in uh, downtown Washington. He's a unique broker in that he primarily focuses on land assembly and tenant representation as well as listing buildings, but he also does sales. So he's kind of a multifaceted broker who's done so many different things in Washington. We talk about his background in sales prior to that at Xerox and joining CB in 1979 and then 
uh, eventually starting his own firm after selling Tyson's Corner Shopping Center in 1985. Led his firm for about nine years and then merged with Studley at that time in about 1994 and then on to Savile's merger. So he's been with the same enterprise now for almost 20 years, uh, almost 30 years, actually. It's, it's Savile's, which is Studley. So we talk about a lot of his transactions that he has done, including one that he and I worked on together, uh, the Mandarin Hotel in Southwest Waterfront. So without further ado, here is my wide-ranging conversation with Vernon Narr. Welcome, Vernon, to the uh, Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be with you, John. Been a while. It sure has. So for about 45 years now, I think, roughly, you've been pretty much doing the same thing, serving your owner-developer clients in a broad array of real estate services. Is that correct? Well, talk about your talk you're, about your unique brand as, as perhaps the most diversified commercial broker in the region that I know, at least. Well, th- thank you, John. But you're dating me. It's been 42 years, but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was 79, <laughs> 79. Well, yeah, I mean, we're still pretty much doing what we've always done to some lesser degree. The land business isn't what it used to be, as you know. So we are focused still on owner-user type properties. And that's gone pretty well, although the user market right now is, you know, due to COVID is not not as rich as it has been. So, in doing, you know, we're still doing some representation of uh, large tenants such as Federal Reserve and people like that, but pretty much I'm just sticking to what I've been doing for the past 40 years or so. Yep. So uh, talk a little little bit more about kind of the the general things. What what kind of makes your particular practice different than other traditional brokers? I mean, what I've seen, and I was in brokerage for a while myself, is there was specialization even when I was doing it back in the early 80s uh, amongst the different product types, which I know you focus mostly on office, but you've done some interesting other things too, as I know with the hotels and other things that you've done. Well, you know, Studley now Savills is primarily a, you know, tenant rep firm. And so, you know, my partners and I were sort of the odd ducks of the company, right? Because we're, we're doing all kinds of you know, sales and, you know, some landlord stuff. And, but, you know, we've managed to make a go of it. And I think we, with the Savills platform, certainly is giving me better access to international capital since we've got, you know, 37,000 people around the country, not maybe not as big as JLL and CB, but you know, we get our share. And so we're still focused on the owner user activities or disposing of, I don't want to say uh, surplus properties. For example, we're BET Viacom, you know, BET got merged into Viacom. They vacated their property up in Northeast and Ward 5. 
And so we're marking that on behalf of Viacom. And we have a couple of buildings in Reston that are owned by uh, Freddie Mac that are surplus that they're not really using. And so we're, we're disposing of those properties on their behalf. A little bit of everything, but concentrating mostly on the sales side. Okay, Vernon. Well, let's go back to take the playback machine here and talk, tell us a little about your origins, where you grew up in high school and on into college a little bit. Okay, well, let's see. Pennsylvania boy outside of Reading and, you know, went to, went to elementary and high school up there and, you know, never was, never felt I was college bound, you know, just barely made it through high school. Right. <laughs> and, you know, my, my interests basically were, you know, cars and guitars, right. Because I, I've always been a musician since I was seven years old playing guitar and, you know, kind of worked in, you know, gas stations and so forth. I figured that was going to be my life, right? It was, uh, and that was 1964 through, say, 66. And then I got the letter from, uh, you know, <laughs> the U.S. Army, right? Uh-oh. Uh, so I was, I was drafted. But let me rewind a bit. I mean, my, my, bring, my upbringing was a little you know, rough, you know, not a lot of money, uh, had a somewhat abusive stepfather and, you know, got through it all, but just figured that my life was going to be right there in Reading, Pennsylvania, you know, playing music and which I was doing all the time and, you know, loving. What inspired your music? What inspired music for you, Vernon? My mother, when I was seven years old, wanted me to learn a musical instrument. And this is now, bear in mind, this is before rock and roll. This is, you know, this is, you know, 1953, right? Thereabouts. So I decided, you know, I'd seen cowboys and I'd seen country and western, and I decided I wanted to play guitar. So I started taking lessons and doing all that. And, and then... Uh, started playing in bands and I actually stopped playing out not more than about six, seven, eight years ago. So it's something I've never laid down, right? I still That's enjoy my, my guitars. I still enjoy working on my cars. You know, that's never left me in, in all these years. But I had to do something to make money to pay for everything, right? <laughs> but 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 back back to the to the to the draft. When I was drafted in '66, that got me out of Reading, Pennsylvania. And when in, instead of going in the army, and this was during the Vietnam War, of course, mm-hmm. I enlisted in the Air Force. Went to uh, Lackland Air Force Base for basic training, and ended up in the medical side of things and got assigned to Andrews Air Force Base and never left there. But what it did do for me, you know, I started thinking, you know what, there's another world out there. You know, I didn't do well in high school. I didn't go to college. You know, I better get my ass in gear here somehow. So I started taking college courses at night at Andrews through University of Maryland, University College. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? This isn't too bad. And I did pretty well. And 
what I was able to do is to, I, I had enlisted for four years, but I was able to get an early out of the, of the Air Force because I got accepted to uh, full-time day school at Maryland. So I was out in three and a half years. So I went to Maryland, majored in, in um, uh, marketing and economics, graduated cum laude. And that's, so that's how I got out of Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> so Maryland, then, then, then what did you do after you went to university? Well, I, you know, I was a commuter at Maryland because I, I was already married and had a son. And so I was, you know, I was basically one of the thousands and thousands of commuters. So I really didn't have a college experience other than to go to class and go home. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I graduated, I started looking around the office market. Of course, a lot of people were coming there to recruit. I actually (laughs) had almost accepted a job with Sears, believe it or not, to go to work somewhere in Pennsylvania. They had their training facility. But then Xerox showed up and was recruiting on campus. And and by the way, Xerox at that time in in the um, uh, Arlington office had a lot of Maryland grads. So they recruited there and I said, hmm, I know Xerox, let me let me take a stab at that. So you know, I got hired pretty much right away, started there in 72, stayed there for seven years, right? great training program. I mean, <laughs> what's not to like about going to Fort Lauderdale on the beach for two weeks <laughs> of sales training? Uh, nice. It was amazing. It's just an amazing company at the, at the time, and uh, so of course came back here and and uh, started started working selling copiers. You know, it did okay, and actually, remember James Brown, of course, JB, JB, and I were sales managers together at Xerox. You know, I haven't spoken to him since now. He's big time, you know, football guy. But uh, JB and I go way back. But it was a good it was a good run at Xerox. My uh, probably my best friend there was Hal Bowles. I don't know if you remember Hal. Sure, of course. But Hal was at Xerox with me, as were you know Ken McVeary and you know everybody else that ended up at CB. But you know Hal left probably in '77. I'm not quite sure. And he kept calling me. He said, Vernon, you got to come do this. And he had gone to Coldwell Banker, <laughs> right? So he, right. he's now a Coldwell Banker, been there. And he's taking yeah. me to lunch and he's doing all these things to try to entice me to come over. I said, ow, oh. you know, I got a mortgage. I got, I got car payments. I got a kid, you know, what what am I supposed to do? And he, so then, you know, every time I would see him, he'd be in a different car. First, it was his 77 Corvette. And then it was his Mercedes, you know, <laughs> big, big Mercedes. And I said, hmm. So, you know, I finally relented. It took him two years, I think, to convince me. But in 79, I said, you know what? I'm going to cash in my 401k. I'm going to live on the $15,000 a year draw from CB. <laughs> That's all they offered in those days. And uh, let's see if I can make it work. 1979 you started then. Eh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. January of 79. 
So what was it like then? I mean, I, I, I was told by Ray, Cab, and, and Bill, your colleagues then, all prior, prior guests on the podcast, that it was kind of like the Wild West. Bill particularly talked about it, Bill Jaynes. And uh, was that your experience? It was just well, kind of do, do anything you, you want to make money, basically? Yeah, well, it, you know, I didn't make money for two years. There's no question. I mean, you know, it was mm-hmm. uh, my 401k was getting down to the <laughs> short strokes Uh-oh. and money was running out. But, you know, I coincidentally sat behind Bill James. So I got to hear all of the all of his stories sat next to John Leinhart, who was at the Notre Dame football club. And so I got to hear all about Notre Dame. And by the way, it was a hell of a lot different back in the day, right? Because we had, we were sitting in cubicles, probably right. five by five cubicles, no computers, no cell phones, just, you know, just push button dial phones. And that's all you got, right? And girl behind me was smoking, which you could still do back then. So it's making me crazy, right? <laughs> but you know, CB was CB was great. Jimmy O'Brien, Jim O'Brien, who hired me, you know, can't say enough about him. God rest his soul. But you know, I, I kind of started out doing the stuff I was doing at Xerox. I mean, it, and the dip, here's the difference: at Xerox, I had something to sell. Mm-hmm. I had a territory to sell it to, and I knew how I was going to get paid. Now I go into real estate. I got to find something to sell. I got to find somebody to buy it. I got to figure out how the hell it get paid. <laughs> so complete, completely, you know, antithetical. But but I started, you know, basically at 2020 K Street, just just start knocking on doors, which you could do in the yeah. day, right? You could mm-hmm. go in a building right. and walk upstairs and knock on a yeah. door and say, hey, I would mm-hmm. like to talk to whoever's in charge of your, your office lease. And that's how I started. Mm-hmm. And up and down K Street, finally made some deals. And, and, you know, I think what really kicked it off was, again, probably in late 81. So that's almost two years. I had befriended, I'd done a couple of leases over 1010 Vermont with Bob Moran and Barry Stern. I don't know if you remember that. Those no, names. Barry, no, Barry, no. Uh, Bob, Bob died recently. Barry, still around, I think, in Baltimore, but did a few leases with in 1010 Vermont, which is just a dumpy little Class C building mid block on Vermont. I'd done a couple of leases, got the be friends with Bob. Bob was a drummer. The guy that worked for him was a guitar player. So we kind of hooked up playing music. <laughs> so he calls me one day, Bob calls me and says, hey, we have an offer to sell our building at 1010 Vermont. And we're thinking about getting the offer. We're thinking about taking it. Can you, th- you think you can beat it? I said, hell, I don't know. I've sold an office building, but <laughs> give me give me 30 days. Let me see what I can do. So sure enough, I went back and talked to Hal at the time, who was my mentor, uh, and said, Hal, here's, a, here's an opportunity, but who do we have? So lo and behold, he had this French bank, Paribas, and we ended up, you know, getting a contract with Paribas. And, you know, there were seven owners. 
And I had six owner signatures on the contract. That's back when, that's before DocuSign and all that stuff, right? Oh, sure. I had six, six owners. Mm-hmm. And the seventh owner wouldn't sign the contract. So I went out. I said, I need to talk to you. He said, come on out to my office and somewhere out in Gaithersburg or whatever. And so I go out there and I sat there for seven hours waiting for him to show up. And it was like, sort of like a scene, like, you know, from the Godfather, you know, your signature, your brain, so could it be in this paper? But anyway, he signed it reluctantly. We closed the deal, Bob and his wife and, and uh, my wife and I, uh, he took us to uh, London and Paris for a trip. So, oh my goodness. So that was, that was the kind of kicked off the whole sales side of, of my experience. And then, you know, I have to say this, that a lot of what I've done in my career has always been with the greatest of partners. You know, I, I can't say that I have done this on by my by myself. I mean, Hal and I were partners for years. As you know, John, Kyle and I were partners for years. We did many, many great things together. And I don't know that I could have done it all myself. And I give credit to all my partners that I work with for the last 40 years. And they're innumerable. <laughs> sure. Talk about, you know, your transition from CB and, you know, how, how you're at, you evolved to the point where you went out and started your own real estate firm called Vector. Well, as you know, be a, being a CB veteran, a veteran yourself, uh, that, you know, all we had was cubicles. We right. had touchtone phones. And we gave up 50% of what we earned. That's right. And at the time in 85, actually before 85, in 83, 84, I was working on the Tyson's Corner Shopping Center sale. And how did, how did you get that deal? You want me to digress to that? I yes. will. <laughs> yes, um, please. Again, it, a lot of, lot, of, lot of players involved here. Jay Hyman. I don't know if you know Jay Hyman, who, God love him, he's still around. He's a, uh, he raises uh, these Ridgeback dogs, and he's actually a, a, a judge at, at these big, you know, dog shows and stuff. Anyway, Jay comes to me, and he said, you know, I have an idea. I think, I think the Tyson's Corner Shopping Center could be sold. I know one of the owners, and do you think – you have an idea of who might be a good buyer for that. I said, well, again, I go to Hal, I say, Hal, who do we got here? And he had befriended a, uh, uh, the people from Landorf, which is Dallas, Texas based, but it's a lot of German money. German, right. right. Mm-hmm. So that was, the, that was the impetus for it. And I said, well, Jay, I think I do have somebody. So he takes me to meet Max Ammerman and Homi Gadelsky, who were the 75% owners of the shopping center. And of course, Ted Lerner was the 25% owner. And that whole center was on a ground lease. Mm-hmm. So everybody and their brother tried to buy the shopping center, right? But it was a leasehold. And of course, Lerner didn't want to sell, and there were, you know, cross, you know, you know, rights of first rights of first refusal to match any offer. And so I got the bright ideas that, you know, let me go to the landowners. 
Mm-hmm. And the landowners were basically three Mormon gentlemen who, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Frank Kimball. Frank Kimball was the main one. No. Jimmy McElvain and Sid Folger. Oh, Folger Pratt. Oh. They had gone down to the Department of Transportation back in 1965, and they saw where the plans for the Capitol Beltway were going to intersect with Route 7 and 123, basically forming an 85-acre triangle. Mm-hmm. And they went in and optioned one property for $500. And then they kept going and kept going and kept, and they finally got the entire 85 acres under control. Mm-hmm. So I went to Frank and of course it, now there's only 25 years left on the initial ground lease with an option to extend for another 25 years at 6% of the fair market value of the land and the buildings. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a crusher for, for somebody, right? So I go to Kimball and of course they don't want to sell, right? And I introduced him to the woman at Langdorf who I'd come to know. And uh, you know, this went on and on and on. We're not going to sell, we're not going to sell. Maybe we'll join venture and so forth. But long story short, we, we, we were able to tie up the property under an option to buy it for, I think at that time, 14 million bucks, right? That was only a 3% return on the ground rent. So, but she said, okay, let's do it. So we did. And once we had the land tied up, then it went with Jay Hyman back to Ammerman and Godelsky, and they, of course, up to this point, had not been willing to sell. Mm-hmm. Ammerman and Lerner had gone across the street to where Tyson's 2 is now, the Galleria. They tied that property up just so nobody would build another shopping center to compete with Tyson's 1. Mm-hmm. Well, long story short, Ammerman and Gadelsky and Lerner had a bit of a, I don't know, not a falling out, but 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 they had some disagreements on the, the Tyson's two property. So that caused Ammerman and Gadelsky to rethink selling Tyson's one. Mm-hmm. So we we're back in there. They defined a price. So it was 142 million net, no commissions, 142 million net. But there was still the right of first refusal. Learner was still there, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we proceeded down that path. Now we had the land tied up. We had a, a contract with Ammerman and Kodelsky, subject to the right of first refusal that Lerner had. At the same time, some other buyer came in, offered Kodelsky and, and Ammerman the same price and offered Kimball 26 million for the land. That was 12 million more than we had it under contract. Could that have been Hallmark Development Company that made that offer? I don't know who it was. It was another broker, and I don't know who who the ultimate buyer. I never did find out. It could have been Hallmark because they jumped across the street, obviously, right? I know they did because I used to work there. Oh, okay. uh, And the guy that did that told me he pursued Tyson's One. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, he ended up developing it, and we financed it when I was at the saw company with Aetna 
And then it went into workout <laughs> in the early 90s. Yeah. So anyway, keep so, going. Uh, a- anyway, uh, long story short, we obviously had to offer it to Lerner. And he, of course, piped up and said, well, I'm going to buy it. So I thought, well, there goes the deal, right? Oh, two years worth of work. Oh. So there, remember, there's only 25 years left on the ground lease. So mm-hmm. he would have had to have extended that ground lease. He, I think he went to Prudential, not sure. But apparently there was some disconnect between whoever he was talking to for his lender. And anyway, he came back after during his 30 days and said, I'm a seller, not a buyer. So, hey, <laughs> we ended up putting it all together for $168 million, which at that time was the record, the highest price paid for any real estate in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm. So we're at the, at the closing table, right? Somebody had, had discovered during due, due diligence, they had seen that somebody had poked a hole in one of the... Uh, pillars in the shopping center and it looked to be something like asbestos so they called in the whole closing got oh. stopped oh no until we had a, a a contractor go out or an engineer go out and verify and sure enough it was not it was some inert you know product and so we ended up closing <laughs> but that was the springboard i said you know what hal john kyle we're out of here, you know? So that was like February of 85. And I said, you know, we're out of here. So we, so Hal was originally going to go with us, but he elected not and to go with uh, his friends at, at uh, then Hadid, uh, Walter Cheadle and Jim Quirk, and they, they formed Huntmar. Right. So Hal went into the equity side of things and John and I, you know, teamed up with a third partner, Duke Baboyan, who's a great partner, not really in the real estate business, but great in running a, running a business, and formed Vector. So in 1985, you broke off and formed Vector. Right. Um, right. It's interesting, Hal started Huntmar with the help of another interesting fellow in Washington, who I don't want to go down too far down the road, but maybe you can explain uh, Nick Antonelli. Let's tell a little bit of story about Nick and well, maybe Nick, your relationship Nick, with him. Nick was one of the greatest people that I've known. He's the kind of person that would do, if he told you he would do something, he would do it. If he told you he wouldn't do it, you wouldn't do it, right? And, and he was running PMI with Kingdon Gould and, and, and so forth. But Hal introduced me to him. And we used to go to meetings with Nick all the time. And, you know, Hal was much closer to Nick and the family than I was. They were very close friends, and Nick, I think, was a, a big supporter of Hunt Moore and lent his wherewithal to help them acquire properties and so forth. And, you know, we kind of know how that worked out in the end, but, but yes. uh, it was, a, uh, it was a, a great run. And, you know, certainly miss Nick. He's, he's around for quite a while. And, and uh, did recover from from the sort of the, the downside of the Huntmore uh, transactions, but I'm not sure what he died. He died four or five years ago, I guess. Yeah, not, not quite sure. 
Nick was a great guy, you know, he and Richie Cohen and, you know, the whole Ulysses Auger, Blackie Auger, got to know them all. Well, did you do business with them at Vector? Did, very much so. Actually, it started back with Nick. One of the biggest land sales that I did with Hal and John, we sold 1300 New York. And that land, it was a parking lot. It was owned by Nick Antonelli and partially by Kingdom Gould and partially by one of the vendors. It was a 60-some thousand foot site. And, you know, at that time, the law firms and everybody was kind of looking on the other side of 15th Street, right? Because bigger sites, the law firms wanted bigger buildings, bigger floor plates. Mm -hmm. And that's only where you could find them. Everything else west of there was built. So we, uh, we were representing the Canadians at the time, Dayon Development from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Right. There was a sort of parade of people coming in. First it was the Canadians, then it was the Texans, then it was the British, then it was the Japanese. And so we were, <laughs> you know, we, were, <laughs> we were in the middle of all of it. But it started with the Canadians and it actually it started with, with Heinz uh, Heinz was in there mixing it up when the Canadians came to town. So Dayon, we, we identified a couple sites, one on I Street, uh, Franklin Square, that didn't work out. But then we went to Nick and talked to Nick about selling 1300 New York. And it took a while, but we made that deal. And that was, I think, the highest price paid on an FAR basis. It was $62 an FAR for a site east of 15th Street. Unheard of, right? But Dayon wanted to be in the in the market so badly, so we put it all together. Introduced they we brought Skidmore in, so that that ended up being that ended up being a, a that was actually a coal banker deal, but that was one of the big land sales that we did with Nick. We also did another deal we did with Nick, finally eclipsed a thousand dollars a square foot for for dirt. And that was the Burberry site on uh, the Demonet at uh, Connecticut M Street. That's the first site, first sale that was over $100 an FAR foot. So we've done some things with Nick. And uh, so it's been, uh, it's been great. Talk a little bit more about your vector, vector experience. We kind of crafted the, the company to reward high producers. You know, granted that benefited John and I, but, you know, you basically could work yourself up to where you're earning up to 60, 70% of the fees that you generated. To, you know, there were certain mm-hmm. thresholds. Um, and we grew, right? We moved into the top floor of 1666 K Street. And I think we might have been at one point up to, mm, we had a Virginia office as well. We might have been up to 30 people. And not all salespeople, a lot of leasing people. Mike Curtis, who you might remember from Mm -hmm. football days, he came over because he was a multifamily guy. He played for the Baltimore Colts, didn't he? And also, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mark Magazine came over. It was a good group. It was a good group. But, and we did a lot of land sales at that time. I mean, I could tick them off. We did the Greyhound site. At 1100 New York. That's Manulife, right? Yeah, well, yeah, it started out with Hadid. Hadid had the south part of the site on the contract. 
we had the north part of the site under contract to manual life and we ended up buying out hadid and so we did the whole block so we, we did 1100 new york uh, we did 1212 new york with hadid we did 1400 new york with siegel zuckerman gosh we also did this is all a vector we also assembled the entire square where 555 12th street is and that was that was yeah, it was it was uh, where Arnold Porter originally was. And the last piece of that sale was with Richie Cohen. He owned the Todd building on the northwest corner and northeast corner. And we said, we need that because it'll give us a whole block. So we, we finally got him to sign and, and close and and then manual. We did four out of five manual life's land assemblies. 1850M, we did manual we did the greyhound we did the um 1350 i that was the other thing we did you know we assembled that and you're you i don't know if you were around when the the block between h and i street on 14th street with nothing but strip joints i don't know if you remember that well i, I was but i wasn't living here at the time yeah. i came to washington for a bachelor's party yeah. And visited a few of those places, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, John, John and I, when Vector put that, basically, Jeff Cohen had gone in and partially assembled. Some I remember Jeff Cohen, maybe not. Anyway, Jeff Cohen had assembled a couple of places. I actually can send you, I'll send you a screenshot of what that block looked like. Well, you know, you've been there. <laughs> but many people don't remember that. You know, it was the California Steakhouse, Benny's Rebel Room, Benny, uh, This Is It, the Gold Rush, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was <laughs> and, a, and a Popeyes. There was a Popeyes in there too. Anyway, we put that whole teal together with Trammell Crow. And Crow, Crow paid 28 million and for a site that was about 35,000 square feet. Who are you dealing with, Crow? Chris Roth. Chris Roth. Chris was here then. Mm -hmm. And his partner was Capital Guidance, who's, you know, Amira Moore, who's now right. at Marquette Madison or Madison, Madison Marquette, Marquette, right? Right. Amir was had Capital Guidance, which was uh, mm -hmm. you know, offshore, you know, lots of lots of equity and so forth. Anyway, we put the deal together. The last piece of it was interesting. There was the American Youth Hostel. That was that fronted I Street, and it was owned by an individual. I'm not going to name him, but I will say he was the stumbling block of the whole assembly. And it came to really a final negotiation where he showed up to the meeting wearing a gorilla mask <laughs> and refused to take off the mask. He said he didn't want to reveal his, you know, his facial gestures, whatever. <laughs> and but we, we ended up making the deal. Trammell Crow put the 35,000, basically half the block on I Street between, you know, 13th and 14th. They went in and demolished all of the, oh, I have to tell you, <laughs> the Capital Guidance guys, and Crow wanted to have their closing ceremony 
at one of the one of the strip joints, right? Okay. So <laughs> we go in there, and the the girls got to know us because we would have to go in there at eight o'clock at night to meet with these owners, you know, because they're not there until eight eight nine o'clock. Of course. But anyway, we had our closing ceremony at at one of those clubs. I forget which one. Anyway, Crow demolished all of them. Here comes Manulife. Manulife's looking for another site. And we've done four out of five of their deals. So they came to us and said, what else, what, what else is available? So we went to Crow. We said, you want to sell your site? Now they had demolished it. They had, you know, it was a matter of right development. So it was not, a, you know, it was no entitlements really involved. They said, well, we might sell it. They asked 1200 a foot. They wanted to... They wanted to sell it. They wanted to make enough money such that had they gone ahead and built it, it would have reflected the net present value of what they had developed and so sure. forth. But mm-hmm. So we ended up flipping the site, demolished, to Manulife for $10 million more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Trammell Crow was happy to take the $10 million and move on. That was another yeah. another vector deal. <laughs> <laughs> so you were cruising along well into the late 80s, and then 1990 came along, in 91. Talk about that experience and what happened. Well, you know, we, we actually we actually did okay into about 92 because we had a, a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of uh, stuff in the hopper. In fact, 1990s when we closed on the sale of the site at 1200 K Street, that was $62 million land sale to Siegel Zuckerman. I mean, mm-hmm. sorry, to Prudential from Siegel Zuckerman. Mm-hmm. It kept us going for a while. And then we probably all the way through 92, 93, we were still hanging in there. The problem was it was unsustainable, right? We had too many people. We had to close Virginia office. We had to let some people go. It was just not sustainable anymore. So in 94, we were down to maybe six, seven, eight people. And we moved into the West End. Still, you know, Vector's still around and still three partners. And Nick Pappas was with us then and, and a couple other folks. And so we- When did Nick When? Oof. Well, he- <laughs> He came after me because he, he wanted to leave Beretta. He was at Beretta at the time mm-hmm. and just saw what we were doing and wanted to, you know, get involved with us. So he came over. I don't know when it was. It was in the mid to late 80s, maybe. He would know better than me, but so he came over. Anyway, we ended up moving to the West End. And, you know, at that point, I mean, it was 94 and, you know, kind of the writings on the wall, right? We got to do something. We need a better platform. Mm-hmm. So I called my friend, Steve Goldstein at Studley. And I said, let's, let's get together. So I did, I got together with him and he made John and Nick and I an offer to come over. And uh, so we did, I mean, that was like June of 94. And we went over there, and again, we were the the odd ducks, right? Because everybody else is doing <laughs> leasing deals, and we're the sales guys. But Steve saw that opportunity to create another book of business that he didn't mm-hmm. enjoy. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, or didn't currently have. So we came over there and, you know, uh, the first big deal we did was 95 or <laughs> a year later, after we've been there, we, we sold 1350 I street manual building, which, you know, mm-hmm. sold it to the Indonesians. And, uh, that was a, that was a good deal and kept on going from there. That's great. So you, the competitive landscape was still pretty intense uh, at that point with, you know, a lot of brokerage firms growing and CB continuing to be dominant. But then you had, uh, you know, the predecessor of JLL, which I guess was like, was it Jones Lang LaSalle? I don't know what Jones their Lang, was. Jones Lang or, and Staubach, you know, that. Right. That, yeah. Right. And then what Barnes, Morris, and Pardo at the time was a big player in the market. And Cushman still was still Cushman a big Wakefield. Yeah. 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 So how did you differentiate yourselves? I mean, obviously they had the Collins brothers that were big, pretty competitive. And how did you uh able to win your share of business then? Well, I I think we realized after beating our heads against the wall to compete with the the Collins boys and the Barnes Mars boys and everybody else that, you know, we had to differentiate ourselves from what they're trying to do, which is, you know, income producing property sales, right? They're still doing it and doing a good job. We said, I said, John, we got to do something different. So we really focused, refocused our efforts on land development. And, you know, a good portion of the area east of 15th Street started to get pretty well built out. And we started looking at the area outside the parallelogram formed by Mass on the north, Pennsylvania on the south, Georgetown on the west, and Capitol Hill. Say, well, Mm -hmm. okay, where's the next spot? And what we, you know, obviously determined that some of the, some of the uh, NOMA, properties mm-hmm. were zoned for office. It was CM3, but you could build office there, mm-hmm. 6.0 FAR, 90 feet of height. And we kind of looked at the parallelogram that we quickly filled out and said, okay, this is kind of like a toothpaste tube, but if you squeeze it, where's it going to go? <laughs> and it looked like to us, it was either going to go south to the, where the ballpark is now, or it's right, going to okay. go north. And we determined, we thought that, that NOMA was probably going to be the next bastion of uh, office development. So we started going in and doing a lot of deals over there. The old Greyhound site, you know, when, 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 Grey, when we sold Greyhound from 1100 New York, they moved to 90K Northeast, where the corner of 1st and K. So we went to Greyhound and said, you know, maybe you, you want to sell it. So at, John and I ended up selling that site three times, you know, <laughs> first from Greyhound to Rose and Greenabom. And then I forget. Anyway, we sold it three times and we, and we marched up and down K street there selling all of those semi industrial properties mm-hmm. that had a, a buildable of six times the land area. And we ended up selling pretty much everything along K street. Then we moved up to M street. Did the same thing on M Street, and and so we've we we went into areas that maybe the Collinses and the other guys weren't going to. Figure we had to do something different. 
So that's what we focused on and did a bunch. We, you know, where, where NPR is today, we sold that site from, it was, a, it was a uh, advertising company that owned the uh, 1111 North Capitol. And we sold it to Stern and Moran and they held it forever and ever. And then ended up selling it to Bruce Bashick and the Westbrook guys. Sure. Of course, we sold it then to NPR for the new headquarters. Anyway, we just kept, I don't know, just, just kept working the same buyers, working the same properties over and over. Yep. So, Vernon, let me, let me stop you for a moment and, and, and start telling a story. And that story starts in 1998 when I got a phone call from Nick Pappas, your colleague at the time. I was walking on the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, on vacation. And Nick said to me, John, I need you to be at a meeting tomorrow morning in Georgetown at Washington Harbor with uh, two gentlemen and my colleague, uh, Vernon Narr. Uh, We're gonna meet with Alan Novak and Russ Kirk. And of Armada Hoffler and Alan Novak of Lano International at the time about a site that we've uh, have under contract in Southwest Washington next to the Portals Project. I said, oh, well, that's interesting for a hotel. I said, well, I can't make that meeting, but I will call one of my colleagues in my office, Peter Farrell, who ended up stepping in on that meeting. And so that meeting (laughs) kicked off a five-year odyssey that you and I shared. So I'm going to let you take it from there, Vernon, because you're actually, I think you go back two years prior to that meeting on that site. So so take it from there. Exactly right. I mean, I'll rewind. We were hired, well, as you know, Fairmont was going to be the hotel on that site. You know, it was just part of Portals, right? Explain the location a little bit. Well, it's where the Mandarin Hotel is today on the southwest waterfront where Steve Grigg and, and Republic had, had done all the, had put together the site that at one time Lincoln had. Lincoln had that site years and years ago. Under a under a master development agreement from the Redevelopment Land Agency or DCRLA, they had basically condemned that property. Not condemned, but they'd taken the property and were putting it out to bid. Lincoln had it. I guess Lincoln let it go. Fairmont was going to be the hotel. They actually had built, as you know, had built the infrastructure already for the hotel. The concrete was in the. Uh, it was graded and so forth. Well, at the end of the day, Fairmont and their developer, and I'm trying to remember who it was, I can't. <laughs> the property was taken over by Lennar Partners, who was the money out of it, Atlanta. So Lennar called me. Uh, we were at, we at Studley at the time, and David Lipson, who's now our uh, branch manager, David came to me and he said, Hey, Lennar called me, said, can we sell this property? It's, you know, they basically taken it over. So we, we flew to Atlanta, met with Lennar 
and got the listing to sell it. I forget how much, I guess it's 7 million ish, something like that. But uh, we marketed it and had a few, few people interested in it. But at the end of the day, Alan stepped up because he, he, he saw the site for what it was. It was going to be a great hotel site. He had the relationship, as you know, with Mandarin, with Terry Stinson. And how did you guys know How did you guys? Alan used to be with Hadid. Alan was with Mohammed Hadid for years. And then he left. And what was I'm trying to figure out whether we did the Rosewood deal first. I think we did. You know, the site next to Washington Harbor was also going to be a hotel, a Rosewood Hotel. And Rosewood couldn't make it happen. So we got hired by Rosewood. I'm digressing a little bit. I'll get back to the story. But Rosewood hired us to sell the site because they realized they're never going to build a hotel there. So in marketing it, we found Alan. And Alan loved the site. He, of course, had the relationship with Sweden at the time. So he ended up closing on the site. It was a great, a great deal. I forget, it was eight, nine, 10 million, something like that. And his plan was to do office building and a hotel. So that, so that was moving quite along. And then came along the, the Mandarin site. And so I called Alan and got him interested in the uh, Southwest portal uh, Mandarin site. And he tied that up. Uh, I'm getting uh, time frames here are a little confusing because both deals were happening pretty much, you know, close together. But then he had teamed up with Armada Hoffler, as you know, on the Mandarin, to be built Mandarin site. But, you know, he said, okay, now I've closed on the site. How do I get it financed? I said, well, we don't do that. (laughs) You know, I I haven't financed anything in my life. So that's when Nick placed the call to you guys and said, let's team up on this. Because clearly we don't have the the reach that you guys had at Lake Mason, you know, to try to get this thing financed. So that brings us up to the current state of affairs, right? And then, of course, you you guys worked your magic, both on debt and equity. You got West Landis Bank to do the debt, and Mandarin, of course, put in the equity, and there it is. It took a long time. That did. It was also the, the, the officially the second TIF done in the District of Columbia. The, the you're right. Gallery, Thank you. Gallery. Thank you. That was the that was the first or second largest TIF. Well, I think it was the largest tip. No, actually, uh, Gallery Place was bigger, and we were uh, about parallel with them yeah. in getting it done. But it was very large tip, and and uh, I mean that basically made the deal, didn't it? Yes, it did. And Alan, I remember going many times to the council, doing an appeal there, and it it as I said, it took five years to close that deal. But he did. He did have the relationships with with the city, which I think didn't hurt. Oh, uh, no question. He's been a, a wonderful client to have. God rest his soul. You know, we ended up selling the Rosewood site again. 
we had sold it from Allen to a Texas, I'm not quite remembering who it was. We sold it to a Texas developer who was going to do some crazy looking, you know, hotel with a, like a potato chip roof on it. I mean, it looked awful. They couldn't get it done. Alan called me up. He said, I want to buy the site back. Mm-hmm. So Alan, we sold it for 15 million to these guys. Oh, it's the people who had, ah, that's right. It's the people who owned the, the, the harbor and they saw the site next door. Well, we ought to get that too. So they tied it up. Anyway, Alan called me up and said, they're never going to get their thing approved. I want to buy the site back. I have an idea. So I said, well, Alan, you sold it for 15. You ain't going to sell it for less. So he said, I don't care. So we went, went back to the current owner, tied it up, closed. We met with the Swedes numerable times. And we made a he designed basically Swedish Sweden house on the water and an office building behind it. And we, of course, we represented Sweden. Craig Lucy in our office was representing Sweden. So initially we did a lease on Sweden house with an option to buy. And of course they exercised their option. They did buy it. So kept making deals with Alan. And then we sold them the site out at Parkside on 295, the 15, yep. 25 acre site that, uh, that Peter's still working on. So. Yes, I know. I know. Yep, that was quite an effort. So yeah. talk about some of your other landmark transactions, Vernon, since uh, you've been with well, Dudley. You know, back in 2000, I teamed up with Loa Zambo and because she was representing Gannett. She had brought Gannett down here from New York and Gannett, a lot of their money comes from Freedom Forum. Freedom Forum had done the museum in Arlington, which I visited a million times. That's another story. But, you know, the Freedom Forum people wanted to have a footprint downtown. You know, they were getting, oh, I don't, I don't know how many people they were getting, but it wasn't enough people to keep that thing running it was hard to get to you couldn't park this is the one in Roslyn you know there's no place for the school buses with the kids to show up so they wanted really to be downtown so Lois and I you know looked high and low to find a site for the museum and they had big plans so we we looked everywhere and they of course like every other museum wants to be on the mall so the closest thing we could find was the site at Six and Penn, which was owned by the district. And they had an old Class C office building that was occupied by uh, Department, uh, yeah, DOE, Department of Employment. And they were thinking about doing an RFP to sell the site. And we went to the city and said, you know, I wonder if we could do an off-market deal on that. Mayor at the time, we met with the Eric Price, who was then deputy mayor. And, you know, we, we had this idea and we had we'd done a bit of a groundswell. We had gone to all of the activists in the area. Terry Lynch, who was sort of head of downtown 
congregations, right? We went to the people at Penn Quarter. We tried to get them excited about having a museum downtown. We took council members who had never been to the museum, to the museum, excuse me. We took them one by one to the museum. We couldn't take two at a time because that makes a quorum. So we couldn't <laughs> do that. And Eric Price wouldn't go with the mayor. So we had to take the mayor separately from Eric. And so we took all the council members through the museum. We took Terry Lynch through. We took many of the act, downtown activists through there to sort of get this groundswell of support for the site to create an off-market transaction. Because again, you know, DC's thinking about an RFP and they had drafted it. So we said, you know, we, what, what, do, what do you want out of this? Or, you know, what, what can we do to make this deal happen? So at the end of the day, we agreed that we would pay 75 million for the site. The DOE had a move by the end of the year. Now this is middle of 2000, right? We said, we need DOE out of here. We need you to be able to close by the end of the year or the deal's off. And the mayor said he would make, he would move heaven and earth to make this thing happen. And we got it all done. We, we on top of the 75 million freedom form agreement, put 25. Was this Tony, Tony Williams at the time? Yeah, Tony Williams. Uh, they uh, Freedom Forum agreed to put another 25 million into the housing trust for you know affordable housing and so forth. So at 100 million dollars, we got the deal done. We closed by the end of 2000. We interviewed all the architects, you know, Polshek, uh, Richard Meyer, you name it. You know, we had everybody in there. And then we had a you know prayed through who's going to be the fee developer. We ended up picking Bob Carr. You know. Long story short, and it was, you know, it was unfortunately it was took longer than it should have to build, and it was over budget. And then, of course, the whole issue, which is no no secret, I mean, with all the free museums in the city of Washington, you know, for a family of five to come in from Iowa and pay twenty bucks, you know, a piece to go see the museum, it was a you know, it was a push, right? I mean, it was a wonderful, wonderful facility. It was. It was many times. So, you know, we all know what happened. I mean, they uh, they uh, sold it to Johns Hopkins, and so it was a it was a, it was a big deal back in two thousand. And of course, it's no longer the museum, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you did 101 Constitution was another large transaction you did. Um, yeah, that, 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 that actually started in sort of the late 90s. I looked at that site many times. I said, geez, it's a 72,000 foot site with a 50,000 foot office building sitting on it with a seven story parking garage. Now, mm-hmm. something ain't right here. So I had gone to the general president. I had gotten an offer. <sighs> I had Who's the owner? Berna? Yeah, Sig Lucasen, who was the general president of the Carpenters Union, who owned the building. By the way, they've been on the site since 1961. Oh. You know, and and uh, actually Dan Rather 
used to broadcast the CBS news from the fifth floor of that building with the Capitol in the background. Little known fact. <laughs> but I had gone to Sig Lucasen, who was then general president, and said, you know, I have an offer from, from uh, I forget who was, Trammell Crow or Manulife or someone. Wanted to sell the site, but wanted to buy the site. And unbeknownst to me, Sig Lucasen was getting ready to retire. He had, you know, a little bit more time on his term, but he was, so he, you know, I had taken an, an offer. I'd taken in renderings of what could be built there. I said, don't you realize you could build a half million square foot building on this site? You got 50,000 feet here now. You could have this, uh, something that could generate, you know, lots and lots of income. Anyway, long story short, they weren't gonna sell it. I kept after them. Uh, Then I was, I got to meet the new general president, Doug McCarran, and started talking with him and he said, you know, Vernon, we're not going to sell the site. We're not going to sell the site. And I had done all this work. I had generated all kinds of analysis of what you could build there and what you could rent it for and so forth. He said, we're, we're not going to sell this. So he, he referred me to American Realty Advisors, who was, there, who was a, a union pension fund advisor. And he said, can you please send your files to ARA. And I said, look, I'm happy to do it, but you know, what's in it for me? <laughs> but so <laughs> ARA folks were great. Randy Sal at that time and Dan Robinson. And the place is run by Stan Eisman, who, who I got to know. Anyway, I said, well, how am I going to make money on this thing now, right? Because they're not going to sell it. So the only way I can make money here is, first of all, it's in a receiving zone for TDRs. So in order to up the the density and up the height, they had to buy 110,000 feet of TDRs to be able to generate that density. Mm -hmm. So they hired me to go get the density. I bought it from Kingdom Gould. We closed on the deal. They now had the density. They said, well, who do you recommend for zoning? I brought in Chip Glasgow. They said, who do you recommend for architects? And I introduced them to all the, I, Shalom Branis, you know, several, you know, arranged all these interviews and so forth. Then they finally picked Shalom to do it. Chip was a zoning council. And then I would say, well, I would like to do the leasing for you. Now, bear in mind, I'm at Studley now and we don't do right, land right. stuff. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I had to go to Steve Goldstein at the time, I said, Steve, I got to ask you, this is going to be the finest project to have mm-hmm. in the city, the most prestigious building across from the U.S. Capitol, mm-hmm. half a million square feet. I'd like to take the, the agency listing. He said, go for it. And so I teamed up with, you know, at that time, Sherry Cushman, Lois, Steve London. You know, we put a team together, a leasing team together and told ARA and the carpenters, I said, okay. We got the team ready to lease it. Damn if they didn't put out an RFP. Oh, no. I had to compete for it. I had to compete for it. So we competed and we won. And we've had that agency up until January of this year for 20 years. Wow. Um, and it's, it obviously was you know very, very successful. We had the highest rents in the city. Uh, the lowest concessions in the city, 
you know, and, you know, I was very proud to be involved in that. You know, in 20 years, we only lost three tenants. We lost um, washing gas because uh, they moved to the wharf. We lost Van Scoyak, who was downsizing. And who else did we lose? Lost one other group. Anyway, but our renewal, our renewal rate was 88%. Wow. People wanted to be there for obvious reasons. All the media people, all the government relations people, you know, we have in essence, for, in essence, you were the developer of that site, technically, because wow. no one else had the vision that you did from the get-go, it sounds That's like. Right. That's right. That's right. I'm very proud of it. Um, it's unfortunate now that January 2021 is around. They've disbanded the real estate department at Carpenters, brought in a whole team. We're now not the leasing team there anymore, but anyway. Long story, it was very, very successful. I can't, I can't complain about it because 20 years to hold that agency like that and make them commissions that we made, you know, no looking back. So let's talk about one other story. And it's one that I was involved in actually uh, when I was in development business. And I found out, I don't remember how I learned about it, but I found out that the NPR was looking to relocate find a new site and well, you were looking for developers at the time to, to pitch. So you gave well, they, me a call and said, John, here's an opportunity. It's not going to be easy, but here's an opportunity. So uh, I brought my team when I was with Concord Eastridge and we came and met with you and with NPR. And so tell that backstory to that, that situation. If you well, can. I have to rewind a bit because Two other brokerage firms had tried to put a deal together with NPR. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, the third time's a charm, right? So we've the third guys in, but it didn't hurt that the estate of Joan Kroc had put $250 million in NPR's coffers either. So it, it made the whole idea about a relocation or redevelopment of that site a lot more palatable and doable. But we had to do a strategic plan for them. And this strategic plan literally took six months. We had to figure out, do they stay on the site? Do they relocate? If they relocate, where? And we literally, John, did a study of all 86 metro sites in the area, because metro about <laughs> half the people there all took metro to work. We literally looked at all 86 metro sites. And it literally, you know, um, when we, this is kind of after the strategic plan, but as part of the strategic plan, we look at all these metro sites. So where do you want to relocate to? And it came down to either Silver Spring in, in the, uh, right by the metro, or, you know, either staying put or relocating. And the, the issue with staying put was, was really, one of operational. The only way they could stay on the site was to build on the vacant lot to the east. And the problem with that is that to build on that lot and attach it to the current two buildings that was currently NPR, it would have been noise, vibration, and everything, and all their studios were at that end of the building. So they could not sustain that construction period 
Moreover, the buildings that they were in were really two buildings cobbled together. It was the one on the west was originally the American uh, American Security and Trust Operations Center, and then there was a building in the middle, and somehow they cobbled them together. But they were out of space. They had about the location. The location was perfect. They but they had gone out leased space at six fifty mass. They had leased space at Tech World. So I mean they were in three different locations now. So. It became patently clear that they needed to relocate. And then the issue was where? And also, what can we do to sell this site? And we obviously can't. We don't want double occupancy costs. We don't want two headquarters. We want one headquarters and certainly not no headquarters. So came down to, again, Silver Spring versus 1111 North Capitol Street. That's what it came down to. I mean, we looked at everything. And so those two sites really rose to the, to the top. But the issue was that 1111 had to be built, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you had a historic building there that needed to be added to, and mm-hmm. it's going to take two to three years, or maybe longer, four years. In the meantime, we had to put together the marketing package for the existing site. Now, the site is called 40-some thousand square feet, but it needed additional development rights in order to get to the maximum density. So we, we were uh, tagged with the going out and buying combined lot development, CLDs they're called, and TDRs in order to generate the full density site that's there today. But the beauty of that is we were buying TDRs for $7 a foot we were buying CLDs for $13 a foot, and we turned around and marketed all of the density for $265 a foot. Mm-hmm. So there was a big, there's a lot of vague in that one, right? So uh, once we had the CLDs and the vested TDRs, then we put together a package to go out and market the site. But it was going to take, you know, we'd have to sell it to somebody who we could lease it back from until our new headquarters was done. Mm-hmm. But the issue of the lease back was that we don't want to lease it back for more than our cost of funds. Mm-hmm. Moreover, we didn't want to lease it back after we had sold it for $120 million or whatever. We didn't want to pay the taxes on that while we were right. sitting there for five years. So we went to the city. We got two things. We got, they capped our taxes at the current value assessment, not the assessment upon a sale. So we capped the assessment at the current level. And we got tax abatement on the new site that's probably worth $50 million mm-hmm. uh, on, present, uh, on a present value basis. So. Mm-hmm. Once we had those two things, then we were ready to go and sell the site to a developer. We ran a, we ran a process, as you know. Boston Properties was not the highest bidder, by the way, at the end of the day. I mean, we came down on a short list, right? But they were not the high bidder. And you've heard this before when Ray talked about it, but there was somebody higher than them. Of course, there were people lower than that. But at the end of the day, uh, we, we ended up closing in September of 18, 
I'm sorry, September 8th, oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait. which you know what that was all about. Yes. Uh, that was that was the, the day or the week that their Lehman Brothers uh, went down. Yeah, Lehman Brothers was their big tenant in one of the New York buildings. We said, oh, crap, you know, this. <laughs> but but Ray was a man of his word, and they, they closed in September of 08 with a five-year lease back. And they needed every bit of that five years in order to finish the new headquarters. So but we sold it for $265 an FAR foot. And I think today is still probably one of the highest prices paid. And of and course, then, Ray, Ray hit a home run with Arnold and Porter. And, you know, he's off and running on the next deal. Yeah. Well, as we learned when I interviewed Ray, he has... And, and by the way, that, that whole NPR deal, I have to give a lot of credit to my partners on that. Uh, Artie Greenberg, uh, Parker Lang, who's still my partner after 20 years, and you know a host of others that were all involved in putting that deal together. I mean, we, I couldn't have done it by myself. So, I mean, Artie was important, and, and Parker, and Tom Fulcher, and Julie Rayfield, my wife. She was on the team. I mean, it was it was a big team because we had to do this whole strategic plan and right, and, right. you know, meet with the uh, the board. Tough board, let me tell you. We had we had a guy who was at Harvard and the re- he was a real estate professor at Harvard, right? We couldn't tell him anything. Right? <laughs> sure, no. and and there were there were some there were some real antagonists on on the board, but but we we prevailed. So at some point in the early 2000s, Studley merged with Savills. How did that impact your business, if at all? Well, it, it really didn't. You know, I was a stockholder at, at uh, Studley, and so the, the capital event was a good one for both Julie and I. So we, we you know, we stayed on, obviously. But, but the beauty of it is that our business model has not changed. I mean, they they pretty much leave us to do what we're doing. They haven't changed the compensation. We still have winter trips. You know, it's basically like, okay, now you've got this international platform with 37,000 employees. And, you know, just keep on doing what you're doing. And then since that time, though, they, they've opened their checkbook a bit. So we've opened offices now in Boston and in Seattle and and Tucson, uh, uh, Phoenix. So we've really broadened our reach. We've uh, added uh, a lot of the workplace strategy. We have a lot of uh, in-house capability now to do project management, which we didn't have before. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not quite you know, perfect. We still don't have the capital markets platform that I would like to see, but you know, it is what it is. And they, like I said, they pretty much leave us alone in terms of what we do. We are a public company on the London Exchange, but it literally hasn't changed other than to increase the size of the platform. That's great. So we're all dealing with the unique market inflection now with the pandemic. How do you see this impacting the office market in Washington, D.C. long-term, Vernon? Well, Stanford just did a study which was published in the Wall Street Journal about what, what do people want to do regarding office space? And about 10% of people said, we ain't never going back. We're going to work remotely. 
about 65% of the people said, eh, might go into the office one to two days a week. And the other 24, 25% said, no, we're going to go back. We're going to go back. So I don't know. I mean, I think you've seen it even before COVID, the downsizing on the law firms are going to uniform offices, uniform size offices, or people taking a much smaller footprint. Law libraries have disappeared, right? So everybody's downsizing a bit. The, the the issue the issue now is is so many people are still have the pause button hit they haven't decided that you know they have leases expiring they might be renewing short term they don't know what they're going to look like a year from now I mean there's still a lot of uncertainty but the people who have to make deals generally are, have decreased their footprint by ten percent or more so the question is. All right, so we're downsizing, but now we're doing this social distancing. Does that mean we need to have more space, you know, so that we can have for people further apart? Don't know. I mean, it, it's still it's still a lot of uncertainty. Bottom line is, you know, right now our vacancy in the city is almost twenty yeah. percent, which I've never seen in forty right. years, right? And that's a lot of sublease, be, sublet being put on the market. It's a lot of people who have downsized. Uh, it's a lot of new product that's come on that you know is finished now, but not least. It's a function of the muffin top buildings. All these trophy buildings are now leased by the law firms who absolutely have to have the upper floor space. So now we have this huge supply of lower floor space uh, mm-hmm. that we're trying to, you know, eat up. We've got a one-on-one constitution. We have, you know, 70,000 feet or had, I don't have it anymore, but there's 70,000 feet on, on the floor that was floors that were vacated by washing gas. Now we got, a, there was activity and we got some things working, but there's a lot of that muffin top space that's sitting around. And then also the, the re- retail space too. Yeah, no question. You know, I don't know how many restaurants have closed permanently. Look at the hotels that are still boarded up. I don't know where it all ends. I mean, I think it may have been a good thing that some of these restaurants are coming back just because when it does open back up, people are going to want to get out there. They're going to want to have you know, a meal outside. They're going to want to congregate. I just don't know what it's going to look like, you know. Mm-hmm. But twenty percent vacancy is, or availability, or whatever you want to call it, is huge. It's incredible. So, how has the real estate brokerage business changed over the years? Are you still learning as a broker? Oh yeah, uh, you got you got. Look, it's like riding a bicycle. Unless you're pedaling forward, you're going to fall over. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, we're still learning. I'm, I'm still figuring out ways how to get screwed on commissions, but yeah, uh, uh, no, but, but, but uh, it has changed. You know, you can't be a lone wolf in this business. You never, you, ha- you can't be. And, and I, you know, look, look, I've, I started out being a bit of a lone wolf at Coldwell Banker and, and it quickly doesn't work. You've got a, you've got a team. People expect it. You've got to have 
more than brokerage on your team when you're pitching business. You've got to have workplace strategy. You've got to have project management. Maybe you need financing. You know, now people are going in with a full full team. I mean, the only thing we don't do now is 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 property management, and I don't think that's a big that's a big hole. But you know, now you've got to be you know have a full complement of services to provide, which you didn't used to. You didn't used to. Over the years, uh, were you ever offered opportunities to leave brokerage and become a sponsor developer? Did you ever consider that, Vernon? Well, you know, I I guess I don't sit up nights, you know, thinking about it because obviously I see all the money that my developer clients make. And yeah, in between there, I take my little piece out. <laughs> but 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 there was there was a and I won't name them, but there was there is a well-known investor developer here in Washington who tried to entice me to come over and be his sort of eyes and ears and take a piece of the equity on anything that I brought him that he acquired. And I just, I thought about it. To me, it's too limiting. You know, I, I, you know, I have to bring stuff to him, right. Instead of, and now I have sort of the, the world to t- the world to talk to, and and I <laughs> appreciate the vast, you know, opportunities that are out there. Rather than look, would I like to be Ray Ritchie? I'd love to be Ray Ritchie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of my favorite people, my one of my best friends. But you know, I don't know. I I, I guess I'm a little. Little too, little too over the hill for that right now. But yeah, at some time, you know, there's been a couple opportunities that have been presented that I've just said, nah, I'll just mm-hmm. keep doing what I'm doing. You know, and the other thing is, is that I've acquired properties, and and probably the vast majority of them have not been winners. But you know, there've been cash calls and so forth. And I said, you know what, I don't need this. It's not worth it. Yeah, not worth it. Mm-hmm. What characteristics in your experience make a great commercial real estate broker in your mind, Vernon? Well, obviously optim you got to be optimistic. Because if you're not, you know, you know, you, you can think you can make every deal, but you can't. But you got to have that mindset of optimism in order to be successful. I mean, you know, I've talked to brokers that, you know, that deal's never going to make and time kills all deals and you know, yada, yada, people go on. But I think, so optimism is really, really critical. And I think you need to, I don't, you sort of like to specialize. I mean, you can't be all things to all people. I mean, we've certainly tried and it doesn't work. And so we're, what we have stayed close to is doing what we know which is development deals, which we do a lot of union work. So we do a lot of buying and selling of headquarters buildings. uh, And we continue to do that. And we're known for that. And I can name all the international unions that we've represented. But so I think specialization is important. And and a team, you can't can't be a lone wolf. You got to be working with a team because this is a 24-7 job. Believe it or not, I mean, I'm getting look, especially with COVID, I'm getting calls all the time from people. So, and, and people don't really real 
give you a whole, whole lot of credit for the so it's not a nine to five job you know you got to live it breathe it you know mel lincoln once told me he's he said what did he say he said something about if it's like you know I, i'm i'm not gonna if if something that I, that each 24 hours a day then i've got to work 24 hours a day so he he's all he was always out there you know weekends whatever he was he was doing business so it's a 24 7 business sometimes so relationships are the key to our industry as you well know (laughs) other than family and colleagues who have influenced you most in your career that's a hard question i I look at some of my clients like alan novak who i who i treasure i mean i've done so much business with him over the years he's been very loyal he's been a wonderful you know, guy to do business with, have dinner with, whatever. It's hard. It's hard for me to say, okay, I'm really this. This is the guy who most influenced me. I don't really know that I have that person. I think I have been a self-starter all my life. Started with nothing, and you know, just you know, as I go through life, I realize that you know, I'm I'm. I'm my own man and God love my wife, Julie. I mean, she's, she's probably the one I most look up to because she puts up with me and, and, and uh, you know, we work side by side at Savills and it's a, like a 24 seven thing. And so I have the utmost respect for the job that she's doing and she's very successful and, you know, I'm going to keep doing this as long as she wants to do it. Well, we've mentioned several great people along the along this conversation so i you know i can rattle them off as we talked about so certainly art greenberg and ray ritchie and and nick pappas and uh, on and on those are all people that you've worked with at, at various times in your career don't forget my partner parker lang he's been and with parker. me for 20 years now and sure he continues sure. to put up with me <laughs> <laughs> so what are, what are some of the biggest wins, losses, and surprising events in your career? Now, you've mentioned a couple of them, but maybe you can reinforce a couple that I, we haven't talked about, maybe. She's I, I think we talked about the big wins. I mean, the, the stuff that we did for NPR, the stuff we did for... for the the biggest surprises, there. biggest surprises in your career, things that just you never expected to happen, it happened, either good or bad. Hmm. I don't know. Next question, John. I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So your life priorities, you talked about your wife and your colleagues and what about giving back, Vernon? Do you have uh, any, any charities or any, you know, other social things that you have concern about that you've given a lot of your time and energy into? Well, and money, as you know, or may not know, I don't know. I'm a two time cancer survivor back in 2004 and 2005 and Johns Hopkins saved my life twice. And so that's where I give back. And I also participate in one of the, uh, one of my cancers was a head and neck cancer. And so GW has a, I want to say they, they have a monthly get together where they invite people in people who have you know, 
got out of the got rid of the cancer to talk to people who currently are in um, therapy or fighting it or whatever. So I, you know, once a month I go to GW and, you know, sit with them and, and they're, you know, it's interesting. It's very rewarding to, it's rewarding for them to hear that I'm a 16 year survivor of the cancer that they're now going through. And then, and it's good for me to hear what they're going through and offer what I, what advice I can about my treatments and, and look, and there's been so many advances in the last 16 years, it's crazy, but I can only relate to what I went through. So that's, that's my big thing is, is um, on the cancer survivor. And so you actually sit with cancer patients and share with your, your experiences and yeah. give them encouragement? I mean, it's not, it's not a big group. Uh, not everybody shows up all the time, but you know, that, you know, I sit with their guys that have had their, you know, they, they can't speak because their tongue's been removed. And, you know, it's, it's sad. It's very sad. Sit there with them and their wives and talk about the treatment and how it's going. And is it radiation? Is it surgery? Is it, you know, just try to talk them through it. And I'm also a, uh, I contribute to Hopkins annual basis like i said they saved my life so what can i say <laughs> well congratulations and i, I, I have been involved with mentoring some of we're right now in the middle of a junior broker mentoring thing at savills in fact we just finished our we had a, a two weeks with two junior brokers that just came on and they're rotating from you know we're capital markets so they're rotating from us to somebody else and somebody else. We have an ongoing program mentoring junior brokers. Well, that transitions perfectly to my next question. Uh-oh. What <laughs> advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Probably that you're only as good as your next deal. <laughs> but, so stay, um, stay relevant. That's what you're you, saying. You yeah. got, and that's it. I mean, I've, you know, it's it's fighting to stay relevant and you know and i do that every day that's great so if you could post a billboard on the capitol beltway for millions to see what would it say vernon for a good time calls no (laughs) 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 i don't that's a question i I don't know i don't know john what legacy would you like to leave? I guess is my what I'm trying to say. Yeah. How, what would you like to say? What would you like people to know about you? And you know, something you'd sign to say that the message you've left uh, this city that you've given 42 years of your career and a lot of your time and energy into. Well, it'd be it'd be you know, I wouldn't want want to recount the hundreds of deals that I've helped generate you know, what you see in Washington, D.C. today. I mean, I'm sure somebody else would have done it, but I take credit for what I've done for the city over the last 40 years, you know, in the in the value creation that we've done, the office developments that we've put together, the service that I've given our clients. You know, I, I don't regret any of it. I mean, I think I'm very proud of it of what we've done for the city. 
Well, Vernon, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it on Icons, and uh, uh, we'll see you down the road. Oh, wonderful. So we just listened to Vernon Narr, who was very illuminating of his uh, storied 42-year career here in Washington, D.C. as a broker with uh, three different firms, CB uh, Vector, his own company, and then uh, merging with Studley, which is now known as Savills. And uh, his focus has been primarily in the city. He cites uh, selling Tyson's Corner Shopping Center, which was quite an interesting transaction that allowed him to start his own firm. So it was a pretty entertaining discussion. So I now, uh, once again, uh, introduce my sidekick, Tom Amos, or he and I are going to have a little discussion about the conversation with Vernon. Tom? Hey, John. How's it going? Good. Doing well. Hey, so uh, the recording with uh, Vernon, the one thing I uh, was thinking about while he's talking about the beginning of his career, sitting around an office in the cubic in cubicles with, you know, just the phones there, you know, it, it, it reminded me of, I was thinking about trying to do my own job without, without a computer. And it, 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 it felt so funny to me. I, I just had an individual start earlier this week and he knew hire his laptop wasn't ready. And, uh, you know, we, we, didn't have much to, to go over with until he got the laptop. It's funny how reliant we are then and, and trying to think about doing our jobs without him now. It uh it seems so foreign. <laughs> I started the same year that Vernon started at CB, uh, 1979, with Prudential Insurance Company as an investment person. And uh, first day I got the job, you know, we had no computers. So my boss came in with six leases and along with these handwritten forms that we had to fill out on, on reviewing a lease. And so had terminology on it I didn't understand. So I had to go down the hall and talk to people about what these terms meant. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't just communicate by email or I couldn't go to the Internet to look them up. I had to I, go and ask questions. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was also given books to read and go through on things that I had to have. And these were hard books. So I had to research like I did in college to go to the library. I had to go look at books. I had no internet to go to. I had nothing like that. And so when I started, when I was in brokerage, we didn't have computers then. That was in the early eighties. So I, same thing as Vernon, you get a a phone, a phone, a, a cubicle, and you had access to phone books and to research that the company had done on companies that were turning, that were changing. We had analysts that would review and go and canvas companies to find out when their leases were coming due. So you would find that out, and that would be how you would uh, learn about uh, opportunities in leasing. And then for sales, you'd find out the owners by looking them up and going to the courthouse and going through the ownership. So you do a strip map of of blocks and know who, what every building owner was, you know, and when they bought the property, what their financing was, you could look it up, all this stuff. You had to go into the courtroom or into uh, physically go to the government offices to look this information up before the Internet. Yeah. So that was how brokerage was done back then. Yeah. It's hard. It was hard work. A lot yeah. of a lot of digging. Yeah. 
and um, door-to-door canvassing. The other thing that I thought would be helpful for the listeners, John, if you could better describe, you and Vernon were talking about the TIFF deal for the Mandarin Hotel. And I know that we, we kind of talk a little bit about subsidies with Matt Kelly for hospitality, but I thought it'd be great if you could kind of give us a little bit more insight on, on TIFFs and how they're structured and how, how they work. So a TIF is a tax increment financing. And it, what it is, it's a, uh, a structured bond financing that the District of Columbia puts together in all jur- a lot of jurisdictions around the country, usually in urban areas, where they, what they do is they, for the property that's being developed or redeveloped, they take not only the land and the building that the property's on, but they might take a district around the property. So let's say it's 10 block square area or more. In the case of the Mandarin Hotel, I think we took most of Southwest Washington, mm-hmm. which is the smallest of the four quadrants physically. And they what they do is they take all the real estate taxes applied to those properties and those are then applied for the next, for the usually a 10 to 20 year period to pay off the bond issue for this property. So in the case of the Mandarin, I think we had a $40 million tax increment financing bond that had, I think, a, either a 10 or a 15 year payoff. So the property was delivered in 2003. I started where, as I told the story in the, in the podcast, uh, in 1998 was the first time I got a call on it. So we worked, I worked five years on that deal. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was a long time. And the TIF was a big part of it, getting that approved. We had to have city council involved. And it was the first one in the city. The other one that was done parallel with us is Gallery Place, which we talked about in the Herb Miller interview that we had done mm-hmm. earlier the, uh, on the podcast. So so that's really what it is. It's an economic development tool to get a project built that wouldn't have been able to be built otherwise. So it has to pass what they call the but-for test, which means but-for this money, the project couldn't be built. Do you think, John, in, in actual practice, I see the benefit for both parties in theory. Do you think that in actual practice that the, the taxpayers are getting good value for these programs, these subsidies. Do you think that the private industry is is kind of reaping the benefits more so, or do you think it's symbiotic and, and both parties are really uh, well, truly getting benefit? Well, it's it's supposed to be a win-win, and and the reason the city wins is a hotel is a unique asset in that it provides three types of of taxes. So you get taxes from the property. You get taxes from liquor and, and restaurant sales, and you get taxes from the rooms. Mm-hmm. So you have three types, three sources of revenue that pay back the note. So a hotel, if it does, if it's successful, can pay back a bond issuance much quicker than an office building or a shopping center, or because you you don't have as much of a tax benefit from right. it. So and hotels also generate tourism, business, there's all kinds of side benefits of a hotel being in a marketplace. So especially one of this size, this was over close to 400 rooms and it had 
at least 15,000 square feet of, uh, of a meeting area, large. Actually, I think it was closer to 30 or 40,000 square feet. It's a big hotel. Yeah. And so it was a huge economic benefit for the city. And it's a five-star. It's really a top-level, high-level hotel. So the room rates were very high. I mean, I think we were programming 350 a night back in 19, in 2003. Now it's probably, you know, well, not now, but let's say when the <laughs> pandemic's over. A year ago. Yeah. It, it'll be four or $500 a night. Yeah. you know, for a hotel room. Yeah. So, so that's uh, the story with that. Good, good. And then lastly, uh, the museum. It's so sad to see uh, it closed. And, you know, my my experience with the museum, I remember going the first time, they give you a, a ticket. So if I think if you went on like a Saturday, the ticket was good for the whole weekend. And I remember walking out and thinking that it was really one of the best museums I'd ever visited. And, we actually, I think we went back the second day, not even planning on it, um, just because there was so much great content there. I really enjoyed that, and it's it's a shame. But you know, like like Vernon was saying, it, it's it's hard when your competition all around is free to 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 sell tickets. But um, you know, I, I got a couple of kind of tidbits here that I thought listeners might be interested in. You know, it closed in December of 2020. It was bought by Johns Hopkins in 2000. January of 2019 for $302 million. Johns Hopkins, they're planning on relocating all of their academic programs for DC into the building. Construction and the renovation is going to be taking place in in multiple phases. They're already starting on some of the exterior work. I just walked by a few days ago and they're taking down kind of that giant wall of the the First Amendment's coming down right now. And and so the the building's going to be modified for you know more class space and things of that nature, you know it, it looks like they they could be ready to move in in 2023. It's a shame that museum's gone, but it seems like this has been a really good fit for for John Hopkins. And it's good to see that this building's going to be, you know, put to put to good use now with 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 them moving in. Yeah, well, it's a phenomenal location. When I toured the, the museum when it was open. Uh, we got a special tour, and I can't remember why I did, but I think we had a congressperson take us through. And I don't know if when you took it, went through, that you noticed there's a studio up on about the fourth or fifth floor of the building that mm. overlooks the Capitol. So if you yes. uh, if you go in there, you can simulate being, uh, I think it was uh, ABC News was recorded there every night. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so Charlie, uh, what's his name? Charlie, who was the the um, you know the news guy at the time, was there every every uh, every night uh, with that in the as the backdrop because you had the Capitol Dome in the background from that location. But you know it was so cool because you'd have they had pieces of the the uh, Berlin Wall in the in the property and all the archived newspaper. Every newspaper in the country had archived back to when it was or started, and I mean. Just yeah. fascinating. You could spend hours in that museum. It was phenomenal. It was. And, it was very. But good. it was expensive to go, and as you said, it's not free, and wasn't. A, it wasn't a bargain place for people coming from Iowa or some in the Midwest to, to spend a hundred bucks to go to a museum there. But it's a it's a good return on investment if it's the only time you're going to go. Though I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that that's all I got today, John. Great. Well, listeners, thank you very much for uh, listening to this uh, 
eventful episode with Mr. Vernon R. and and uh, the discussions of some very interesting things about Washington, D.C.'s history and perspective in real estate. So once again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>